Well, once again, great to see you today. Glad to have you with us. And we are continuing, of course, our study of the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 3 in just a moment, but there's another verse I want you to turn to in just a moment. So you can turn to Philippians 3, put your finger there. We'll be there in just, just a second. We'll have another verse we'll look at by way of, of introduction. An author named Ben Shaw, in his recent book, uh, Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity, uh, tells the story of two men who were walking along a beach in the Florida Keys several years ago. Uh, they wandered along at the beach for a mile or so, kind of enjoying the beauty and peacefulness of the ocean that day, uh, when one of them spotted a bottle washed up in the sand. It appeared there was something inside the bottle, so they picked it up, and to their surprise, they saw that the bottle contained some documents that were wrapped neatly in an official-looking ribbon. They opened the bottle, they pulled out what looked like an, an official will for someone's personal estate. In disbelief, they kind of read the opening page of the document, and it said, whoever finds this bottle and the contents within is entitled to inherit my entire estate. There were more official documents as well as the contact details, supposedly for an attorney who could verify that the whole thing was authentic. Well, the two men had very different opinions as to what to do with all this. One of them said, oh, what a joke. This is certainly a hoax. It's too good to be true. So somebody's having a lot of fun with this. Just put it back in the bottle and throw it back in the ocean for somebody who's more gullible. This is just some, some jokester's hoax. And he, he turned around and walked away. The other guy said, wait, wait a minute. Well, wait, wait, wait now. He said, what if it's true? Maybe it's a hoax, but maybe not. Isn't it at least worth investigating? I mean, the stakes are pretty high. You know, one, one phone call could answer the question. Now, shouldn't we at least look into it? It looks pretty official. I think we should consider it. The other guy just, ah, just, just walked away. But that fellow folded up the papers, put them in his pocket, ran to catch up with his friend, who just figured the whole thing was a bunch of nonsense. Well, a couple days later, the man with the documents called the phone number of the supposed attorney who was listed as the legal representative. And lo and behold, the whole thing was true. After several weeks of legal work, he ended up inheriting $5 million worth of cash in real estate. Now, you and I have many friends and loved ones who look at the message of Jesus Christ the same way that those fellows who happened upon the bottle on the beach were looking at that. Many think it's all a bunch of foolishness. It's too good to be true. It's a story only for the gullible, for those easily deceived. Anybody who thinks for himself would realize it's all nonsense. And then there are others who say, but what if it's true? It surely wouldn't be that hard to figure it out. I mean, the stakes are pretty high. If heaven is real, then hell is real. My life will hopefully last 80 or 90 years, maybe 100 years. Ran into a rancher friend last week who said to me, well, I'd, I'd like to live as long as possible. I said, of course, we all do. But even if my life is long, eternity is forever. So shouldn't I at least think about this? What if it's true? What if Jesus really was who he claimed to be? What if his message is the truth? That would be worth a lot more than $5 million. And I want you to begin today by looking at Matthew chapter 16. 
just a couple of verses here, Matthew chapter 16. And listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are going to form uh, the basis for our thoughts today. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to read, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. As I'm flipping through my Bible, my mind's going about uh, 90 miles an hour faster than my fingers are, and so what I see pops into my brain. So don't mind me. Just wave and say, wait a minute, Larry, where are you? (laughs) Matthew 16, okay, Matthew 16, and we're going to read verses 24 to 26. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here is a tremendous question for all of us. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 26, what an incredible question. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, we're back to, as we talked about last week in Philippians 3, we're back to this accounting language. This business terminology, gains and losses and profits and losses. And Jesus says, what will the profit be if you gain everything in this life, but in the end you lose your soul? What are you willing to exchange for your soul? That's a very significant spiritual principle. There is an exchange in salvation. There is an exchange of all that I am and all that I have. I'm exchanging that for all that Christ is and all that he offers in eternity. There is an exchange of all of my religious activities and all of the religious credits that we talked about last Sunday. All of my own righteousness that I think I have earned. I'm exchanging all of that for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that I have spent my life accumulating, even if I gained the world, it would mean nothing if I lost Christ. So I will exchange all of that for him. That, that's what Jesus is saying. The wise person looks at everything in life, he measures it against the loss of his eternal soul, and he says, it isn't worth it. I'll give this up to gain my eternal soul. You see, the person who comes to God is the person who is willing to pay whatever God requires. Whatever the price, whatever the cost, the person is willing to abandon everything for the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard me talk about in in, in years gone by, missionary Jim Elliott martyred for Christ in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956. While he was treating his friends were trying to reach for Christ, an indigenous tribe that had been totally isolated from the outside world. I've read this to you before, and I'm sure I'll be reading it to you again. You may remember Jim Elliott wrote in his personal journal this great quote, probably one of his most famous quotes. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think about that great thought. I mean, he understood exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life, 
to gain what he cannot lose, eternity. People look at you and say, oh, what a bunch of nonsense. You're, you're a crazy idiot. You're giving all this stuff up for Jesus. Jim Elliot, who died at age 28, I think, or 30, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Because he totally understood the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Steve Jobs, the world-famous founder of Apple, he wrote as he was dying. I've seen several different versions of some of this. I came across this the other day. Steve Jobs, who died at age 56. He says, I have reached the pinnacle of success in business. In other people's eyes, my life is a, is a success. However, aside from work, I've had little joy. At the end of the day, wealth is just a fact I've gotten used to. Right now, lying on my hospital bed, reminiscing all my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth I took so much pride in has faded and become meaningless in the face of imminent death. He said this is a very fascinating thought. He said, you can hire somebody to drive your car or make money for you, but you can't hire somebody to get sick and die for you. I don't know where he stood with the Lord Jesus Christ, if in his, if in his dying moments, if in his waning moments, he somehow made some kind of commitment to Christ. I don't know. But I do know this, that, that that's exactly what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 16. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now to our text in Philippians 3. If you were with us last week, you remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul, listed seven spiritual advantages that he had, and he figured he could really score points with God with those because of who he was and what he'd done. And then by the grace of God, God opened his eyes to realize that it was all a waste. And as we saw last week, salvation is not by rituals. Salvation is not by ethnic origin. Salvation is not by family connections. Salvation is not by education or tradition. Paul said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I know my culture. I speak my language. I, wrote he I write Hebrew. Most Jews spoke and wrote Greek. He said, no, not me. He says, I know my culture. I know my traditions. I know my language. I know my customs. I was taught by the highly respected Rabbi Gamaliel. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am at the top of the ethnic pyramid. He says salvation is not by religious status. He was a Pharisee. As we said last week, it was estimated that only 6,000 Pharisees even existing in Paul's day. A very elite group. There were millions of Jewish people. Only 6,000 Pharisees. The requirements were very, very strict. And Paul says, I'm right in the middle of it all. He said salvation is not by sincerity. Paul had incredible zeal for God. It was misdirected zeal. It was self-righteous zeal. But there was nobody who was any more sincere in what they believed than Paul was. Salvation is not by good works, as we kind of wound up our thoughts last week. Old Testament students tell us there were 613 specific regulations in the law of Moses. And Paul says, I kept up with all of it. You can't snoop around in my life and find anything that I'm not doing that I should be doing. So when it came to human accomplishments, Paul says, I have gained the world. I am accomplished. I am educated. I am brilliant. I am well-connected. I am respected among all my people. He, he had everything that this world could offer to a first century Jewish man. He had it all. 
And yet he says, when it comes to being forgiven, to being in Christ, he said, everything in my profit column is worth nothing. He said, I have counted it as a loss so that I can gain Christ and be found in him. And that day on the Damascus road that's recorded in Acts 9, when Paul was headed to Damascus to arrest more followers of Jesus, the living Christ broke through his incredible blindness and his self-righteousness, and he shattered his confidence in all of his religious accomplishments. And, and the root of his self-confidence was, was forever ripped out of his heart, and he made Jesus Christ his Lord and Savior. He exchanged all that he thought he was for everything that he came to know that Jesus was. He says, so I can be found in him. Now we're going to read today again verses 4 to 11, and then we'll pick up these next thoughts of Paul. Hebrews 4 through 11, I'm sorry, uh, looking at the word Hebrews there, Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We just reviewed from last week what Paul counted as loss. I want to talk to you about this week is what, when he gained Christ, what did he gain? This is so beautiful and spiritually rich for us because what the Apostle Paul gained is exactly what we gain when we are in Christ. When a person stops trusting themselves in all of their personal religious moral credits and, and they trust in Jesus Christ and all that He is, then we also, by the incredible grace of God, we gain all these things that Paul said we gain. There are five of them in this passage. I'll list them for you. You can easily see them in the verses we just read. And then I kind of want to unwrap what I call unwrap the gift of Jesus Christ. These are the five things. Knowledge, righteousness, strength, fellowship, and eternal glory. I'll tell you again. Knowledge, righteousness, strength, fellowship, and eternal glory. The first four of those we gain immediately when we trust Christ, when we place our faith in Him for forgiveness of sins. The last one, eternal glory, we gain this, we gain that when this earthly life is over. What an incredible exchange. It, it is the greatest trade in the history of the world. To give up all of our things that don't work anyway for knowledge and righteousness and strength and fellowship and eternal glory. The first one says, knowledge of Jesus Christ. We spoke about this a little bit last week. You remember, of course, we don't mean just knowing facts about the Lord Jesus. 
Paul says, verse 7, what things were gained to me, I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Then he said in verse 10, that I may know him. The, the first gain we have in Christ is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are several New Testament Greek words translated know, knowing, knowledge. There are two main verbs and then a couple of other words to use less frequently. One verb means to see or to understand, to perceive or to recognize a fact. I can say to you, I know that it rained a half an inch on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You say, oh yeah? How do you know? Well, because I walked out in my backyard and I looked at my rain gauge. I saw it. I saw the water in the gauge. That word for no, we use the word no that way. I know it rained. Well, I went out. Yeah, the ground's wet. I, went, I, I know it rained a half an inch because I went out and I looked at the gauge. That's one way of, uh, of knowing, to know or perceiving a fact by looking at it. Then I could also say, uh, uh, there's this other word, to, to know by experience or to know by relationship or to know by personal involvement. I can say, I know my wife. That's a very different experience than looking at my rain gauge. Better be, huh? See, it's two very different kinds of knowing. One is I know because I just recognize a fact because I saw something. The other one is I know by experience, I know by relationship, I know by personal involvement. And that's the word, the second word, that's what Paul is using here in this passage. When he talks about knowing Christ, to know by experience, to know by relationship, to know by personal involvement. I don't just know factual information about Jesus, I personally, experientially know Jesus. To use some modern social media terminology, I am in a relationship with Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Master, my Savior. I know Him, and He knows me. In John chapter 10, the great chapter on the Good Shepherd, you know this verse, we've quoted it to you many times. Jesus says, I know my sheep. And they know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. The same word there. And they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. When Jesus prayed what we call his high priestly prayer in John 17, that beautiful prayer for his disciples, he was praying that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right after the Last Supper, they went up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed. As soon as he finished praying, Judas shows up with the soldiers. Jesus is arrested and crucified the next day. This last beautiful high priestly prayer we have recorded for us in the Gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for those who were alive then and those who were yet to be born. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful thought as he prays for those yet to be born. He's praying for us. Jesus knew you and he prayed for you 2,000 years ago. If you, are going, if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus already knew that 2,000 years ago, and He was praying for you the night before He was crucified. And in verse 3, He says of that chapter, you can look at it sometime, John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says that's the essence of eternal life, is knowing 
God and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is connected with knowing God by knowing Christ. It's the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Paul is speaking of here. That all-surpassing, greatest, most awesome thing you could ever know. You could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 7 that we just read, He counted all things lost. In, in, or lost. Interesting. That verb tense in that sentence indicates a completed action. He made a decision to leave his spiritual accomplishments behind, to leave everything he was trusting in, everything he was counting on, to leave it all behind and throw all his trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I counted it, I counted all things lost. But then in verse 8, he says, yet I also count all things lost. That's a different verb tense. Same verb, different verb tense. Verse 7, it's kind of a past tense. Actually, it's a perfect tense. It denotes a completed action in the past. But then in verse 8, when he says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, that's a present tense verb. And he means he, is, he not only made the decision to throw all his trust, all his allegiance, all his loyalty on Jesus, but he keeps doing that every day of his life. He said, yes, when Jesus met me on that Damascus road and that light shined from heaven and knocked me off the horse, yeah, and I said, who are you, Lord? Oh, it always amuses me. Who are you, Lord? It's like me, like me talking to my son-in-law. Who are you, Luke? You look at me, well, you know who I am. And, and Paul knew who he was talking about, but I, I think Paul recognized this was divine but I think he was just asking if this is really Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He said, it's hard for you to kick against those goads, isn't it? In the old days, they had the old, old ornery mule. I'd try and kick the guy, pull him but, but behind the plow. So they'd put these sharp pointed sticks. Every time he tried to kick the guy behind the plow, he'd kick, he'd kick that sharp pointed stick. They called it the goad. And Jesus says to Paul, it's hard for you to be that old stubborn, hard-headed mule and keep kicking against the goads, isn't it? Paul says, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, right at that moment, Paul says, I counted everything I was as a loss. Being a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee and all the great things I had, all of my accomplishments, all my education, all my social connections. He said, at that moment, I counted it all loss for Christ. All right, Lord, what do you want me to do? But now he says, every single day, I keep counting it loss. Because every single day, I run into somebody who wants to kill me. Every single day, I wind up, with, I end up <laughs> you know, locking horns with somebody who wants to throw me in jail because of what I'm preaching. So he said, I keep counting it as a loss. Because now I have a new life. I have a new direction. I have a new perspective. I have a new value system. I have new priorities. The great verse, you all know 1 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And Paul says, it's all new now in Christ. So this is not this relationship of knowing Christ. Is not this, oh, I had a great experience with Jesus a few years ago, so now I think I'm fixed, and I just go back to living my own life. No. Paul says, I counted it all loss, and now as I suffer for Christ, 
I continue to count as a loss all the things of this world. I still, every day, am counting it as a loss in exchange for the greatest, most fantastic, awesome, all-surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. So if you are in Christ, you have personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the creator and ruler of this universe. You know Him if you are in Christ. Number two, righteousness from Jesus Christ. First, knowledge of Jesus Christ. Secondly, righteousness from Jesus Christ. If you were with us last week, you remember we spoke of this. In fact, you who are trying to witness to your relatives, this is such a fantastic witnessing tool. I mean, it really is. You remember we spoke about this righteousness last week. In this world, there are two kinds of righteousness. One comes from trying to keep the law, trying to be good, trying to be nice, trying to be respectable, etc. That righteousness we are trying to earn and maintain by our human goodness. The problem with that type of righteousness is that it can never be perfect. See, that, that's a problem. That kind of righteousness. Yeah, you can be nice, but you can never be perfect. Hold your finger and let me show you one verse. I know I'm rolling along here a little long, but here, just hang on. My next points aren't as long as the first ones. Don't worry. If you were worried, you can stop. Revelation 21 and verse 27. The Apostle John's talking about heaven, and he says this. There shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's going to be in heaven? Nothing that defiles. Only things that will be in heaven is perfection. No, the only people who will be in heaven are perfect people. They say, wow, who can get there? Now we're getting somewhere. Nobody! If you're looking for your own righteousness, nobody can get there. Because John says, nothing that defiles can enter heaven. Nothing. The only thing that enters heaven are people who are perfect. And the only way to be perfect is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's standard to enter heaven is perfection, not good but perfect. It's impossible to achieve that. You know, the old, this is a World Series season. You know the old baseball saying, nobody bats a thousand. You may be the greatest hitter in the history of the league, but nobody bats a thousand. We are incapable of being perfect in the eyes of God because He sees our hearts. He knows our thoughts. We cannot possibly ever be perfect. But the righteousness that comes by faith is perfect. Not because our faith is perfect, but because the object of our faith is perfect. What we are trusting is perfect. Who we are trusting is perfect. In fact, look at these verses here. Verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which come, which is from God by faith. So you've got righteousness coming from God by faith and through faith in Christ. So you've got two kinds of righteousnesses. Human righteousness, trying to be good, can never be perfect. Can never make it. 
and the righteousness of Christ that comes to us by faith. That's why you can have absolute confidence that you are going to heaven. Because we are in Christ. Not counting on our own righteousness, but we're counting on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is perfect. So we get the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We get righteousness from Jesus Christ. Number three, we get strength from Jesus Christ. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There is a dynamic spiritual energy that comes from the Lord Jesus. This is not power over people. This is power over me. This is power over myself. That there is no strength to overcome sin in our own flesh. There is no real strength for serving God within me. There is no power for witnessing in my own flesh. Paul calls this the power of the resurrection. I believe because it's in Jesus' resurrection that his power is most graphically demonstrated. What other work of Christ is as powerful as that? Yes, He healed the sick and He raised the dead. He raised other people from the dead. But how about raising yourself from the dead with no outside help? Raising yourself from the dead. That's what Jesus said He was going to do in John 18. He said, nobody can take my life from me. He said, I'll lay my life down and when I'm ready, I'll take it back again. He said, I've been given this commandment from my Father. Jesus raised himself from the dead. It showed he had power over the physical world, also the spiritual world. He had power over the curse of sin. He had power over demons. He had power over Satan. He crushed their power. He sealed their doom by his resurrection. And the greatest display of power Jesus ever demonstrated was his resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, that's the kind of strength I want to be a part of. Because in Christ... There's power over sin. There's power over trials and temptations. There's strength to witness. There's strength for service. Not only can we not be forgiven by ourselves, we cannot be purified or sanctified by ourselves. But in Christ, we have strength from the Lord Jesus. Number four, fellowship with Jesus Christ. He said, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, we need somebody to fellowship with when we suffer. We need a companion in our suffering. Any follower of Jesus who has faced suffering will tell you that the deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus are the direct result of intense suffering. No question about it. Suffering always drives the Lord's people to him. Why is that? Because we find in Jesus a sympathetic, merciful Savior who cares. We find a friend who understands our pain, who knows our weaknesses and our flaws. We often quote during our prayer time that great passage in Hebrews 4. We have a high priest who is is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. That great prophecy of the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 53 says he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We live in a hard, harsh world and everyone, everyone has times of trial and suffering, physical, emotional, mental. Where do you turn to find comfort and peace? Some people turn to the bottle, some to drugs, some to recreation, some to work just trying to find ways to forget the pain or ignore the heartache. 
Old rancher friend of mine years ago told me, Larry, I just work, 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 so then I don't have to think about things. That was his escape. Where do you go when you want real comfort? When you want partnership in suffering? Where do you go to have somebody understand what you feel? If you're in Christ, you run to Him. That's the fellowship of His sufferings. Then number five, eternal glory with Jesus Christ. One day when we die, our friends and loved ones are going to give the undertaker some nice clothes to dress us in. They'll plan our funeral. Within a few days of our passing, they'll bury our remains. But if we are in Christ, there will come a day when we'll hear the shout of the Lord's return. And our body will come out of the grave to be reunited with our soul in heaven. And it will be a glorified body, just like the body of the, the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. Our new glorified body will never get sick. It will never get old. It will never wear out. It will never die. And Paul says, I'm conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul uses a form of the word resurrection that only appears here in the New Testament. He adds a little preposition that means out in front of the word resurrection. So it gives the phrase a very graphic picture. Literally, if you were reading this in the Greek language, it would literally sound like this. The out resurrection from among the corpses. Kind of a graphic thought, but I mean, that's what Paul's saying. He, he, he said, I'm looking forward to that out resurrection from among the corpses. What a, what a glorious day when we, when we receive our resurrection body and we enjoy the glories of heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So I ask you again, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In Christ, God offers us the joy of knowing Him. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The strength and power of His resurrection. Jesus' fellowship in suffering and eternal glory with Him forever. What could a person possibly hold on to in this world that is equal to that? What a, what a treasure we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in Him? Let's pray. Lord, we have so many friends and loved ones who are trying to get to heaven on their own. They're looking at their own personal goodness. They're looking at all their religious accomplishments. They're looking at their education. They're looking at their money. They're looking at their religious connections. They're looking to everything but Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we, by the grace of God, will be able to communicate these wonderful, beautiful truths to them. And Lord, I pray that we will think about all that we have gained in Christ. What a treasure we have in the Lord Jesus. Knowing the creator of the universe. Experiencing that incredible, dynamic resurrection power of the Lord Jesus the fellowship of His sufferings. And that one day, Lord, when we will have the, the eternal glory 
of being with you forever and ever and ever. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, I count it all loss in order that I could gain Christ and be found in Him. Lord, may that be true of us and many of our friends and loved ones to whom we're trying to witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.